Hello, and thank you for listening to my podcast. My name is Maya Littlejohn, and I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I'm a junior at Colorado College with a major in Race and Ethnic Studies and a Political Science minor. The reason I'm in this class is that I find it extremely important to grow through experiential learning and travel, while also being very cognizant of the ways in which I, as a privileged American, traverse the rest of the globe and, quote, learn outside of the U.S. Because of this, the minute I learned about Dr. Lewis's intersectional class in Berlin, I knew I had to take it. Regardless of my high expectations, this class has done nothing but exceed my desires to explore intersectionality through a non-American lens without the problematic notions of, quote, helping or othering. I'm very excited for our time with the DEFRA because of the important transnational feminist work this organization has been doing for many decades and continues to, to do today. Work that I care deeply about and that also reflects the core themes and values that this class has been and continues to explore during our time in Berlin. Adefra's work correlates to the things we've been learning in our class because, quite honestly, a class on intersectionality in Berlin would be remiss if it didn't study the transnational feminist work Adefra has done, as well as the internal achievements it's made within the black community in Germany. As Jasmine Edding states in her 2005 article, and I let myself go wherever I want to, quote, Adefra was for black women to finally meet, get to know each other, and exchange their experiences and ideas. Black women and lesbians wanted to get out of the isolation they had grown up in. Here's a little background about what Berlin was like in the mid-1980s, as well as the ways in which Adefra. 1980s, Berlin was considered a, quote, cultural metropolis. Some even like to refer to it as the lesbian spring. Even still, there was a huge lack of acknowledgement for the intersectional black, femme, and queer identities that lived and had always lived. As Jasmine Edding states in her 2005 article, and I let myself go wherever I want to. Defra's quote, main purpose is empowerment for black women. Self-determination, self-development, and assertiveness are critical for us in facing and surviving racism and sexism in our daily lives in a predominantly white, Christian, patriarchal society. Defra worked tirelessly to promote these goals. In 1986, they released a book and film, which Defra identifies as an integral part of their movement and self-defining process titled Showing Our Colors. This book was a way for many femme black Germans to openly discuss their experiences as well as to get their stories out in the public eye for the first time. The main question I'm looking forward to exploring during this session is that of Adefra's origin story. Here's a little background. On Adefra's website under the page Home Sweet Home, they state that Adefra began as, quote, 
a group of black women activists who were brought together in Berlin by the works and stays of the Caribbean American feminist theorist, poet and activist, Audre Lorde, who lived from 1934 to 1992 and inspired to found the initiative ADEFRA, Black Women in Germany. I'm deeply interested in the transnational nature of this organization, though before attending this day of class, even still, before attending this day of class, I kept wondering if the femme individuals that began ADEFRA, that were from Germany, ever felt animosity or contempt for this black American woman that came into their country and into their homes and told them not only how to identify, but how to do so and how to spread this new identification. I'm very interested to not only hear about the beginning of ADEFRA, its formation, and how, with the help of Audre Lorde and other transnational femme black activists, this organization was able to create such strong and powerful roots that still maintain and grow today. I'm also interested, of course, in answering my question about the response that the leaders had to Audre Lorde's, um, to Audre Lorde coming and spreading this message and helping but also teaching and telling them how to do so. Needless to say, you shouldn't worry though because this question about Audre Lorde's influence as well as many others will be answered in this podcast. During this session, you'll hear from the brilliant Peggy Piesch and Maisha Edgars, as well as some tidbits from Dr. Lewis. I will also have a conversation with my classmates, Dee Adams and Atia Harvey. Thank you for tuning in, and I really hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoyed my time with the DEFRA and reflecting on it. One of the many things I found extremely impressive about ADEFRA was the fact that this group of diverse, brilliant black femmes were able to create a united front and so successfully complete, as Dr. Edgers called it, the process of self-naming for black German women. In the mid-1980s, the German language didn't have a word for the identity of black German people. As Dr. Piesch stated, Another point I, I, I want to emphasize is is language which goes together with that, you know, um, fa uh, uh, founding a collective, uh, um, see, uh, literally, you know, acknowledging and recognize each other. But in the 80s, you know, there was a, a period of time where, you know, all of this, this, this moments of power were in, in the, in, in mostly in West Germany. And of visibility. Uh, and this of, of this increased visibility. Increased visibility, exactly. So, but, but in other technology, also this, this um, young, powerful sisters had to uh, apply and, uh, um, and literally to invent was language. Mm -hmm. So that's why the 1986 is so important for us. And uh, well, I'm always hammering that down because you know, I'm coming from literature, I'm a mm -hmm. literary scholar. That is so important also to me. Um, this, this volume, Maisha already talked about, um, uh, 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 the Afro 
German women uh, on the trace of their history, it uh, had in the title for the first time a self-naming uh, 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 um, yeah, notion, you know, a, a term to say Afro-German women. That was in 1986. I know that is literally last last, last century for you. <laughs> but actually, historically, I was it five, was so the it was in my right. lifetime. So your professor was already in life. Yeah, you know? that's very, you, very you have planets. But you have family, you know, yeah. which, you know, are from 86. So it's not that we are talking like 18th century. Right. And just, you know, just try to, to think about what it means until then that uh, German as a language did not have a single positive, you know, naming for black people. That also means for their own people, also they mm -hmm. never liked to see, see it that way. Mm -hmm. But we were not all, but uh, you know, some of us were in families here. We grew up here. We grew up in this land. What I appreciated most while hearing about this naming of Black German identities was Dr. Edgar and Dr. Piesch's emphasis on the fact that the founders weren't creating identities for Black Germans because they had already existed and been in Germany, but rather that this was a movement to invent a new language and provide increased visibility for these identities. I love Dr. Edgar's verbiage when she called this a process of, quote, articulation. Here, we can listen to Edgar's explain this in her own words. And again, to emphasize that, it's, it's, it's very much for me about the role of, of articulation. Mm -hmm. And because and, the, the visibility could, it, it can, can lead to thinking uh, the presence was not there, and you already drew, drew on the presence and said how far back black presence goes into uh, um, uh, the building of what is German. And uh, it, it's, it's about colonial history. There were many struggles because the, the knowledge production and, and, and the societal contributions of, of black subjects were being erased. Uh, colonial history was being, was being uh, framed in a way that put us as black subjects into a very passive role. So we are objects that are being artifacts that are, are being lined up in the, in the longer trajectory of, of German history. So many contestations were there and, and the end result was that um, different organizations in the black community were then uh, um, became involved. And, and uh, the, the last area of the, of the exhibition was about black activism, the history of black activism in Germany, so the, 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 the history of the movement, and it went into what Peggy is saying, linking the presence and, 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 and also the, the violences connected to this presence, obviously, so colonial history, uh, colonial subjects, um, the exchanges that, that happened there, the white parts, violent, genocidal actions, but also uh, um, uh, travels, traveling concepts, traveling bodies, traveling families, so families that can trace their history to five generations at this point, so black German families that can trace their history. Uh, uh, across five generations in Berlin or, or wherever. So this, this is, these, these are the, the spaces where, where what Peggy's talking about, this, this trajectory of history uh, and the presence is being shown, but the articulation is what takes it over the edge, that it brings it into the public sphere, that, that, that makes this visibility a voice to reckon with. Because otherwise we are there, we are like uh, um, statistics, more or less, but when we begin to articulate in, in societies that are very discursively constructed, it makes a change. So poetry, and I think that's where Peggy is moving into, uh, the self-naming is crucial, but also the poetry and the autobiographies of, 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 of black women in Germany coming to play at that point.
mentioned earlier, something I was interested in exploring during our time with the DEFRA was the response Black German women had to Audre Lorde. As an American woman who came into their communities and spaces and gave them ways to define themselves as well as the tools to do so. I promised I would get back to this point, and here's the time when I do so. Here were the responses when this question was asked during our session. So I, I think that, 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 um, that there's different amounts of, of, of knowledge and embodied knowledge that we bring when we are um, critical activists and they use knowledge from critical spaces. And I think that's Audrey Lord's in. So she's coming from the Caribbean context, uh, from, from, I think, in, in, in parts working class culture movements, where you, 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 you tend to embody a certain sensitivity to not just come and name people. I saw you first, I'm the first person who no, saw you, right. now this is the name. And, and you are this. So the, 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 there's that that's coming into it on her side, the sensitivity, which I think makes the fragility of the situation. The situation is fragile, but it makes the fragility manageable. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of happened. But Audrey Lord, and, and, and that's why, and I said before that we're, we're trying not to write the linear history, so we mm -hmm. did say Audrey Lord's Germany, but the volume that's going to come up, we're going to call it at the same time Audrey Lord's Germany, Myrna Bird's Germany, Angela Davis's Germany, Paul Robinson's yes. Germany, W. E. D. Boy's Germany. Yes. So it's many activists and academics who came in with transnational concerns. Yes. And, and linked them to us and, and left some knowledge making here and took some knowledge making back with them. Yes. And, and they're trying to show this as, as the wave thing. So this yes. is the whole wave thing going on. So I, I think that, that, that we, we, we don't have a really huge controversy around that. And it has to do with, with the approach and, and, and with this embodied knowledge, but also the embodied reflexivity mm -hmm. coming from Audrey Lord. Having said that, there are contestations because obviously there are power dynamics always and we reproduce power dynamics and we reproduce marginalizations. So there is a lot of controversy and sensitivity about being studied mm -hmm. by, by people coming from, from the context of the US. Uh, so this is, this, this is a struggle about the, uh, in, in establishing black studies, we, are, we, we, want, ex, we want exchange and, and we're sensitive and it's still a fragile situation and, and they're trying not to be studied. And we're also trying not to study other parts of the African diaspora when we then in, in turn get grants coming from a geopolitical space, grants coming from a geopolitical space that uh, paradox, uh, in, a, in a parody way asked Trump if we can be second, if America first can, the Netherlands be second. There was all this who can be second competition. And it's, and it's anecdotal, but, but, but it, it, it is, there is some truth to the, 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 the geopolitical power dynamics. So we also have to be sensitive. And, and we're doing scholarship in the African diaspora in all kinds of places. For me, Africa is very close, African contexts are very close to my heart. So uh, uh, I'm trying not to reproduce this dynamic by doing that, by coming from with a grant from here and then doing that kind of scholarship. Um, and at the same time, I'm, I'm open for any solidarity, especially yes. coming from Kenyan context. As soon as I hear anyone from the Kenyan diaspora is there, I'm trying to get on that panel. Mostly yes. successfully, <laughs> uh, 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 but, but <laughs> it's, it's about the technology, the social technology right. of how do I get it? How do I get it? In a non-dominant kind of way. Right. <laughs> so there's, the, the, yes. the, there's that obviously going on. Black is like the magic. 
And now for the discussion portion of my podcast, I will let my discussants introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Dee Adams. I am a junior at the Colorado College, um, and I study race, ethnicity, and migration. I am from Memphis, Tennessee. Hello, everyone. My name is Atia Harvey. I am a senior feminist and gender studies major from Washington, D.C. One of my questions was about Angela Davis, and Dr. Edgars stated, um, quote, Angela Davis's blackness was only seen as an aesthetic extra. Mm-hmm. So they made a huge point of talking about how Angela Davis and other black activists were huge in their upbringing, but their, they were huge up unto their blackness, and their blackness mm-hmm. wasn't considered or thought of as part of them unless it was something cool aesthetically mm-hmm. or externally. So I was just wondering the correlations of how you've seen that and we've seen that today and how that still permeates through black celebrities or black idols or black personalities. Um, I personally thought a lot about Obama mm-hmm. and Beyonce when thinking about this and kind of black, certain black individuals are idealized and place on a pedestal. I can only think of the U.S. context, but within the U.S. context, mm-hmm. speaking from the eye perspective, until their blackness is noted or examined or just expressed in any way, shape, or form, then people kind of literally don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I think Thanks. I think to your point um, that it seems as though these individuals who are black are fine when they're palatable and not speaking mm-hmm. politically. Mm-hmm. So, but when they do start speaking politically and basically black ass political, that's when it becomes unpalatable mm-hmm. to the larger conscience of people and that's when like it has to be stamped out and stopped. Mm-hmm. So to your point of Angela Davis, I remember it being said during the session, I can't remember who said it, but that basically her being used as an icon with her aesthetic, mm-hmm. but it was safe because she was far away and mm-hmm. she defended values of socialism. And it was kind of a way of being like, look, like this black woman's doing all this great work. Yeah, but black is kind of like, she's doing all this and she's black, which is cool. Yeah. Like that makes it cool and this is palatable. Yeah. But if she was actually really like completely inserted in her blackness, she would not have been mm-hmm. as like palatable, I feel. And was it East Germany this was yeah. going on as her black as an aesthetic? And it also seems as though blackness as an aesthetic goes way further back than even that and like also now in contemporary times that like you can be black as cool and cool as mm-hmm. long as you do not speak mm-hmm. but as soon as you start speaking out against white supremacy or other functions of oppression that's mm-hmm. when your blackness is really seen and that's when it really needs to be stopped because before that if someone's listening they can be like oh you're one of those good blacks who doesn't mm-hmm. really yeah. like, challenge like what's going on yeah. like you become like a yes man or whatever mm-hmm. like that. You're the good black. But as soon as you speak, which white supremacy, we know, does not like for black people to speak out against it, it becomes an issue. Because blackness, at the end of the day, in the eyes of white supremacy, is seen as an issue. And yeah. if it's speaking, then it's definitely something that threatens. But if it's not and it's seen as an aesthetic, then it's something that you can like kind of gloss over and not really think about and not really look at the political like movements and like establishments and like organizations that like blackness can have on an international level through its diasporic like attributes Mm -hmm. and this is kind of leading into a point that they made about um 
East Germany's, I guess, co-opting of uh, black people without referring to their blackness as an early wave of cultural appropriation, like the different parts of cultural appropriation that showed up in Germany. And as you stated, Deed, like how you can say, oh, look at how cool this black person is because they're doing things that we like that are appeasing. Mm -hmm. Like um, when Formation came out, when Beyonce did that performance at the Super Bowl, like I think it was an SNL skit or something mm -hmm. where they were making fun of white people. Yeah, like they, all the white people went crazy and were just like, Beyonce's black, we didn't know. It's in like those types of things. It, it's so, it's, it's insane. So a question I was really interested in was Audre Lorde's involvement in the beginning of a DEFRA, the beginning of literally defining black women and blackness in Germany. So I'm definitely talking, I've mentioned it before in my podcast, but I would love to go back and discuss. When that was asked, Dr. Edgers said that there was, because Audre Lorde embodies a lot of different knowledge and just personally embodies a lot of different, what she called critical spaces. So what I took that to mean is that she encompasses a lot of different intersections mm -hmm. and also thinks critically and works critically and has dedicated her life to doing so right. with those different intersections. She, quote, embodies reflexivity. What I heard was that she kind of just had more leeway Mm -hmm. and was allowed more ability and movement in her work with them because she identified with a lot of what they were doing and also had just spent a lot of, spent her life working on these issues. Right. One, what do you think of the whole act of this American woman coming to Germany and naming black Germans mm -hmm. in and of itself? Well, to the first part of your question, I think that it had to do with a recognition of what she was doing mm. and that she wasn't, Audre Lorde wasn't a random black yeah. woman just coming in like, why don't you guys have yeah. this? Why don't you have this? I think it was a recognition of like the work and the critical spaces that she was talking mm. about working with and doing that allowed her that kind of leeway, as you would say, although I would kind of call it like respect. To, like, come in and be like, wow, this woman has, like, done all of this work. We're starting out. She's at a point where, like, she's here and, like, we're working to, like, get there in a kind of way. And it was almost, I felt like, meeting where everybody was. To be like, you know what, let's start at the very basics. Like, let's come up with a name. And I don't think it was, like, done in a way where it was like, you guys, blah, 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 like a superior kind of yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. I think it was done in a more camaraderie and, like, mm -hmm. solidarity kind of thing. And so I believe that's why she had more leeway. Mm -hmm. And I also think that, you know, it's pretty... I'm still, like, struggling with this, too, because of how U.S.-centric some things can be. Yeah. And that I'm sure that there was some kind of pushback, like, who is this American woman? Who yeah. does she think she is? But because she was also black and had dealt with that kind of stuff, that that's why it was like, hmm. I feel like had it been a little different, say, had she been, like, a different colored woman, that mm. it would have been a bit more, like, yeah. what do you think you're doing? Yeah. But I think that's one of the, like best like attributes of like the diaspora mm -hmm. that like you can relate to certain things like on an international context and without mm -hmm. geographical borders mm -hmm. and so it's like 
my blackness exists in the U.S. and in here in different ways and on different spectrums. But at the core of it, you're black and I am also black. And there are certain things that will be similar mm-hmm. in our experiences and in our life that like we can both come together and speak about and like create new knowledge and create new terms to like benefit us both in our history and in where we're going as we move towards something better. And yeah. so... I think that respect given to Audrey Lord and how she was working not to basically like basically like to put them down or anything was the reason yeah. why that it was like acceptable for her to come and like just the amount of work that she did I feel like it would yeah. be odd if people didn't also listen to her at the same time yeah. and I think it also like kind of made paid made way for like um, other German like black scholars to like be like Mm -hmm. hey like this is happening like we're also doing this kind of work like now we're gonna come in with her not after her but with her Mm -hmm. and like start defining our own spaces of German blackness because there are certain parts that she won't understand but we live this experience and so now we all have like a very very like firm foundation to like build our own scholarship off of Mm -hmm. and to build our own scholarship with other people in the black diaspora yeah. So I think that's why she had a little bit more leeway as a as a Black American woman. Thank you. Definitely. Um, I think you, Maya, already uh, touched on the fact that they referred to um, Audrey as being sensitive and reflexive, um, and I think that those are two very very important things that um, seem to be deeply important to them because they talked about the con- uh, controversy over being studied or trying to be studied as other people in different diasporic studies and black studies, like feeling like research subjects. Um, but in addition, I thought it was really fascinating, though, that they also apparently don't even use the term Afro-German anymore really to describe themselves. And so it really seems as though that really was just a jump off point for that first section of this organization. And I think that for them, um, the word that they used was solidarity. They were open to solidarity with um, Audre Lorde because as you were just saying, Dee, they had no ground really to stand on. And as I'm learning and doing the readings for this week, um, it was almost there. The ground that they could have had was almost being systematically erased. Like white Germans were deciding, and I think they talked. They touched on this too in that discussion that white Germans just decided that that's the only German you can be is white German. Like anyone who was other than that is other, even if they've been here longer than any person who's considered white in Germany. So it's. I think for them it was like this black person who has these experiences and these understandings of blackness who they also referred to her coming from the Caribbean and having done similar work Mm -hmm. there as ways and pieces to really help them get their foothold. And now that they have that foothold, they are letting go of that term Afro-German and moving towards being black Germans or black um, women and black people. Yeah, to actually continue what you were saying, Atia, they said that in the late 90s, they decided that the term Afro-German was limiting, and it was mm-hmm. kind of how they said nation-statey, and <laughs> which, that's awesome, um, but so they decided to just call it black women in Germany, mm-hmm. which 
seems more inclusive. Inclusive. Definitely. I wonder if they're gonna change it um, soon to not women, or have mm-hmm. they put an asterisk? You know, I'm unsure, yeah. but I imagine that with the yeah. work that they're doing, that there would be an asterisk yeah, added. Yeah, I imagine yeah. there has to be. Yeah, Definitely. yeah, yeah. And just the fact that it's like just moving towards like all of you were saying, like just black in yeah. general, mm-hmm. it like creates even more like connections to like the diaspora yeah. of like, I am black here, I am black in Germany, yeah. I am black there, everywhere I go, I will be black. And like, that is what I'm naming myself. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important that there is a name for a person mm-hmm. and a name for a movement because without it, I feel like how can you even like look back at its like origins and how mm-hmm. can you look forward to its future without a name? Yeah. Do you hinted a lot at the importance you feel towards naming and the use of a word is? I just mm-hmm. just want to give you room. You don't have to. Yeah. It. I just think that the use and like the creation of a name like creates like your future and like mm-hmm. also like hints at your past so that you know where you're going. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that personally without a name and without a self-described like self-made name that like anything else is like other people putting like their own terminology on you and defining Mm -hmm. your movement and so I feel that if your movement doesn't have a defined name that it can be more easily co-opted it can Mm -hmm. be more easily like changed Mm -hmm. this mission can like lose sight its goals can be like co-opted by other things and like other people can come in and infiltrate and so I think names are very important in defining like who you are and like your foundations because without it who are you if you didn't have a name like what would you be called? Like, mm-hmm. what would you call yourself? And how would people in your own community identify you? Mm-hmm. And so I feel that names are super, very right. identifiable and, like, vital to, like, the existence, especially of, like, marginalized people mm-hmm. and marginalized people who are of color, who are queer, who are at every vulnerable intersection. Because without it, like, what, what do you have? If you can't even name yourself, then what other power, what can yeah. you do, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I just, I think it's vital. Because, like, where's your starting place without a name? Yeah. Um, The only thing that I would add to that um, would just be that in trying to figure out a name that could possibly become more inclusive, if they take the women or the name woman off of it it, or put an asterisk on the end of it, that um, they were speaking about providing a space with and for each other. And so they probably have and are continuing to have conversations about who is supposed to be a part of that and who all they want to be included in whatever the name is they have created. And does women, is women inclusive of people who are femme? Is that what their goal is? Um, I don't, I, I don't know. I wasn't, I didn't ask a question about that. I feel like I should have now, but um it definitely will be interesting to see um, where they go from here and how they will or will not or change their name if they choose to do so in the future. Well, also to Dee's point, I think it's very obvious the motives and modes and means that the organization is using and the name isn't limiting any of the openness mm-hmm. that definitely. they're so obviously putting out there and so obviously promoting, mm-hmm. you know? I mm-hmm. Don't think it's taking away from anything oh, right no, now. No, no. Um, oh, D, to your point about the power of naming, especially for marginalized people, that made me think about the power of also creating your own name and mm-hmm. having the room and space and ability to create mm-hmm. your own name mm-hmm. within the black diaspora, within the peoples that have been so, I mean, ex- so 
colonized and enslaved. It, yeah, just the power of having a name, but also being being able to create your own mm-hmm. is vaguely emotional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's also so a kick well. in the teeth to white supremacy. Yeah, that yeah. you think that you thought that you could name me, that you own me in this way, <laughs> yeah. but like you can't take the name that I give myself. It doesn't matter what you yeah. try to do because that name will live on and it'll grow and evolve and change if it needs to. Mm-hmm. So wonderful. Mm-hmm. To that point, um, I was gonna end my podcast talking about this but I guess I'll start talking about it now (laughs) and piece that we read and I let myself go wherever I want to she tells us that a defra means quote the woman who shows courage in the Ethiopian language I'm hotty thank you (laughs) (laughs) thank you (laughs) and that's beautiful the woman who shows courage and I think that in through meeting these women that have been heavily involved with the DEFRA for so long and also just through reading about and hearing the actions that a DEFRA does and their initiatives and what they've been doing for so long I think courage was possibly the best word to explain the work that the individuals (laughs) and the group has been doing transnationally and internally also Mm -hmm. And so I just really wanted to emphasize that in my podcast, but also, I guess, give you guys room if you want to add anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to keep going back to naming. <laughs> <laughs> because it takes courage to come yeah. up with a name and yeah. like decide what you're going to be called. And yeah. so, and also, I thought it was really interesting that it came from Amharian. Um, yeah. Because, mm-hmm. like, in the history of the continent of Africa, it was the only one that wasn't colonized it stood its own yeah it was not colonized it was occupied for a certain period of time but it was never colonized and so that little tidbit right there I felt was like really like grounding and I was like wow (laughs) I'm like that's pretty incredible and it's like it was like one of those things that I felt like if you didn't know or were looking for it like you would have just went on by like oh it just comes from um Amharic and like blah 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 but like the history of even of even Amharic and Amharian and Tavinia in Ethiopia is like that's something mm-hmm. amazing to like yeah. see and it's amazing to like know and it's amazing to like be like wow like see what you did there yeah. <laughs> I see and you. so mm-hmm. yeah I thought that was also like really important and like it was also like in that area of the world um, mm-hmm. in East Africa it's where like the first people were the yeah. first the oldest bones mm-hmm. were found in the world mm-hmm. there and so it's like we were here at the very beginning and like we have a name now but like don't forget we were here even before that and like we're gonna be here millennia after that like it doesn't matter speaking of that time period that was something else that I think will stick with me now from now on is how long this organization has lasted Mm -hmm. that name means something like uh, Dr. Lewis was explaining that it has been around it's the longest standing I guess black women's organization in the world pretty much that's that's a very serious like accomplishment and another thing that I would add or the last thing I would add is just um I read a book in a class I was taking called environmental ethics called trace by a woman or professor at Mount Holyoke named Lorette Savoy um and there's a chapter in that book that's called what's in a name and she goes in depth about the naming of places 
that are co or colonize really names of places and people within the United States in relation to slavery and indigenous people and places. And so um, I'm relating that book into what you've been talking extensively about, Dee, because there's so much in a name is what that chapter really was about. And as you've already said, this name will stick with me now for the rest of my life. The work that these women are doing is incredible. Thank you mm -hmm. so much. Thank you. Uh, yeah. yeah. Thanks for having us. Of course. <laughs> Anything else you want to say? No, that's it. That's it. Long live a defra. <laughs> Thank you so much. As I mentioned in my discussion portion, I think the root of Adefra's name is a rich and extremely apt representation of this organization. Courage is a huge theme that I not only saw within the leaders we met during our session, but that can easily be detected within the work Adefra accomplishes. The courage Adefra women exhibit in expressing their identities through text, through literature, film, academia, and also just through everyday conversation, remains a deeply important development within transnational feminism, still to this day. During our class, when we touched on activism during the mid-1980s and the ways in which Adefra came out and was being described was one of the most powerful moments for me. Someone mentioned the fact that feminists would literally travel to new places and shoulder tap people until they landed on the transnational activists they were looking for and were able to finally connect with them. This kind of work is unimaginable for us lazy, technology-driven millennials. I personally couldn't imagine starting or promoting a transnational black movement without Facebook or at least phones in this day and age. And the fact that black femme activists today have the ability to move and organize with such ease is a direct result of women at Adefra and the work they've been doing for decades. I left this meeting and have been reflecting upon it with little less than awe on the ability I had to meet such important stepping stones within the lives of black femmes, black scholars, black youth, and everyone and anyone who cares about change and social and political progress. Thank you to Dr. Heidi Lewis for giving us the opportunity to meet with the women from Adefra. And of course, thank you for my discussions, Dee Adams and Atia Harvey. And more than anything, thank you to Dr. Maisha Edgars and to Dr. Peggy Piosh for your time and for sharing your knowledge and stories. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed.